0: Say, who, who is who? Do you collect Doctor Who? With over a hundred Target books stacked up, you are definitely a Doctor Who collector. For all things in the Doctor Who collecting world, tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors podcast, a Direction Point Network podcast. I am Larry Van Merspergen, your host, and I have been collecting Doctor Who, including Target books, for 40 years. With popular features like collection protection and the most outrageous offer, you can learn a lot about Doctor Who collecting. Available anywhere you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels.
1: Hi, I'm Juliet.
0: And I'm Nathan.
1: Experience Doctor Who from the very beginning through a classic fan's eyes.
0: And through the eyes of a new Who fan.
1: Reminisce and relive those classic moments with Nathan as he offers fun insight.
0: Or experience them for the first time with Juliet as she dwells on social issues, history, fashion, and the size of a flashlight.
1: We're the Time Streams Podcast.
0: Find us on Spotify, Stitcher, or Apple Podcasts. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club. Enjoy your travels.
2: This is Tim Trelaw, and I play the third doctor for Big Finish Productions. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels.
0: Hello, fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the wordy task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations, because Legopolis, City of Words, etc., <laughs> etc., et you, you know the drill. My name is Tony Whit and today we have an equally wordy four-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. It's probably louder than usual, in fact. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes and has not previously read any of the books we've read until this podcast, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello. And those of you looking at this on YouTube can see him now, as he used to be able to do. It's me. It's Dalton. <laughs> and there's our semi-novice fan, one who's seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast. And this time around, it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. Hello. And finally, we welcome back to the podcast our good friend, the co-host and producer of the podcast's Talking Trek to You and Beatles Stuffology, J.G. Macquarie. Hello, J.G. Hello. Thank you very much for having me back. I'm glad to have you back. And as if that weren't special enough... We're recording today live as part of this weekend's festivities at Chicago TARDIS, so we have other people joining us and possibly more along the way. Who knows? But if you weren't able to be here today, that's fine. We know you're here in spirit and that you're watching this video on YouTube or you're listening to this on SoundCloud well after the fact. If you like what you're hearing and you like what you're seeing... mm -hmm, Please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash BC. Depending on the amount you give per month, you'll receive, among other possible goodies, mugs and T-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving the PBS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of them, you store them in another universe to keep the entropy from getting at them. <laughs> just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons. Bart Lamy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, the Video Junkyard Podcast, the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wex, Stephen Pickering, James Somnall, Dave Davis, Simon Painter, and Joseph Milton Welling. Thank you all. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Thank you. We in
0: fact have Rick Taylor and Dave Davis with us today, which I'm very happy about. And also we have Jason Miller from the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. I hope I got that name right, Jason, because you've been on the podcast before, and I want to make sure we get that right. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com, Y7K, M-A-S-P-R. In fact, we expect you to. We finish our discussion of Tom Baker's final season as we discuss Christopher H. Bidmead's novelization of Legopolis. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who: The Gapilis, adapted by Christopher Biggins from the script that aired from two twenty-eight eighty-one to three twenty-one eighty-one, published by Target Books in October nineteen eighty-two. As of this reporting in November twenty-twenty-two, the title is currently out of print. And is available as an unabridged audiobook, one hundred twenty-four pages. As we said last time, there's a lot going on with this one. We get a brand new Master in his first full appearance. In fact, here he be on the cover. We get not one but two new companions. Nissa joining Team Tardis was. One of the surprises I was trying to keep quiet, though it occurs to me that Dalton may have been the only one for whom that was a surprise. Yeah. (laughs) Because Allison saw Legopolis with me at Chicago TARDIS several years back, so she may or may not remember.
1: It was a surprise to me because I don't think I saw the whole thing. What I remembered were parts from the very beginning and the very end. I wonder if I saw maybe... Some kind of recap and then the final part? We were
0: watching the kind of MST3K-ish version that they do at Chicago TARDIS, and I remember that both of us were falling asleep because we'd just been watching Brighton Rock (laughs) in the other room.
1: Possibly due to cognitive deficiency, it was still a surprise to me.
0: I think that would have been. We get a new script editor with Anthony Root, though not for very long, and most importantly, we get a new doctor with the departure of Tom Baker. When we pick up recording our critiques of the books from next season after the new year, we'll go into more depth about the actresses who play Tegan and Nyssa, but not before talking about the new Doctor, of course, whoever he or she may be. Hmm. Longtime fans will get that joke, because that's a joke that both Tom Baker and John Nathan Turner made at the time, though it's since become a reality, thank goodness. Instead, I want to take a few minutes to talk about Tom Baker, Before Tom Baker became the fourth Doctor in 1974, Doctor Who's ratings were better than they'd been in the late 60s, but they still weren't earth-shattering. After he took over the lead, the ratings soared to levels that hadn't been seen since the height of Dalek mania in the 1960s. They shot back up into the 9 million viewers mark, which was unheard of for this show. While Philip Hinchcliffe and Robert Holmes both deserve due credit for transforming the show, the lion's share should go to Tom Baker. The show would also never have reached the soaring popularity it has around the world, but especially in the U.S. had it not been for Tom Baker. While there are some of us for whom John Pertwee was their first Doctor, a huge number of that earliest contingent of American Doctor Who fans will tell you that Tom Baker was their first and still their favorite at least until that upstart David Tennant showed up and screwed up everything. (laughs) I'm kidding, of course. I adore David Tennant, and I'm glad he's back again. Spoiler alert. A story featuring Tom Baker is a bit like the old adage about sex. Even when it's bad, it's still pretty good because Tom Baker's in it. Not the sex part, the story part. (laughs) Mind you, That doesn't always come across on the page the same way it does on screen, again, kind of like sex in that way, but I can honestly say that without Tom Baker, this podcast would not exist, and so I'm kind of wistful to be saying goodbye to Tom Baker for the duration of these podcasts because he will not be appearing in a novelization again until, well, The Five Doctors, and even then it's kind of, we'll talk about that when we get there dramatic reading of the back cover JG, we like to give this to the guests, so if you'd be willing to do the honours for us
3: I'd be more than happy, I have my trusty copy of Legopolis standing by here, which sadly I have owned since 1982 I can only apologise for just how sad that sounds. Anyway <clears throat> my finest reading voice In theory the TARDIS should be able to change its appearance to blend in unobtrusively wherever it happens to materialise In practice, however, because of a fault in the chameleon circuit, it always looks like a police box, a minor inconvenience that the Doctor now hopes to correct. Fixing the mechanism involves a visit to Earth and then a trip to the planet Logopolis, normally a quiet little place that keeps itself to itself. But on this occasion, the meddling presence of the Doctor's archenemy, the Master, ensures the disruption of normality, and even the Master is horrified by the threat of total chaos he unintentionally precipitates until he finds a way to turn the imminent destruction of the universe to his own advantage.
0: As he always do. Yes. Yes. Because of course he can. Ugh. Because of course he can. Because this is how he does. By the way, before we go into talking about first impressions, I picked this up at Chicago TARDIS this weekend. It's the Legopolis playset with the regenerated Doctor Peter Davison and Tom Baker's outfit, the Master's TARDIS, and the itty-bitty little Aquapolitan. Well, I'm sure I'll lose under a bookshelf at some point during just <laughs> stay in my house. Mm. So there we are. I don't know why I pulled that out. I just did. So, JG, I want to start with you. Way back when, when you first saw the story or read the book, let me ask you that. Did you see the story first or did you read the book first?
3: So I saw the story when it went out in 1980, because I am unspeakably old, and it knocked my little socks off. I'd never ever seen anything like it. It was the most brilliant thing I think I had ever seen in my life. It's still I kinda of want to say it's my favourite regeneration story. And I know it's supposed to be Caves of Andrazani, but it's kind of Legopolis. I had just never seen anything, but this kind of heady mix of kind of metaphysics and actual physics and maths and computer science and all this stuff. It just Blew my tiny little seven-year-old mind. It was amazing. And that's why I know I've had this book since it was first published, because the second this novelization came out, I pounced on it like a, a cat and a dead mouse. I was all over this thing. I just couldn't get enough of it. It's the most wonderful... One of the most wonderful pieces of television I've ever seen. I adore the novelization. I basically... Like unapologetically begged you to come on this episode so that I, yes, I could talk do. about it at some considerable <laughs> length. And I just, I'm thrilled to be able to be here and talk about it. I, I adore Logopolis beyond all hope, measure and reason.
0: Fantastic. There was also a panel at Chicago TARDIS this weekend where it was focused on by itself. I think it was Larry Van Mersperden who ran it. And it was a very interesting discussion. You're not the only one who thinks of this as their favorite regeneration story, even though mine's personally Caves of Andrizani, but for reasons we'll go into when we get to that one. Dalton, what about you? What was your first impression when you got this?
2: Having just seen the Master kill Tremas, take his body, and leave Nyssa without a father, (laughs) I was looking forward to seeing what this asshole was going to do next. Um... (laughs) because we knew from you that this story as well was going to contain the master. And clearly by the cover, he's going to play a large part in this basically kind of seeing him back to the height of his power with a normal body, not some decrepit mummified shell of a being that he was the past couple stories we've had with him. Yeah. Kind of interested to see where this was going to go. And also knowing that this was going to be the last Tom Baker, the last fourth doctor story wondering what that was going to entail, what horrible thing was going to happen to the doctor to force his regeneration, which was similar to, was it Pertwee's doctor that also fell? (laughs) Well, you remember Pertwee's doctor falling,
0: but he kind of bounced back from it. David Tennant's doctor fell.
2: But so having, yes, memories of the doctor having fallen and being put into various states of uh, being, I guess. So yeah, kind of excited for this. It's it's a good way to end the season, I will say. This time he's fallen and he can't get up. <laughs> no, he can't. <laughs> no,
0: he can't. Dave Davis in our chat says, Sadly, some of the effects haven't fared well with time or repeated viewings. It did warrant repeated viewings, though. It does. In fact, it kind of holds up well. There are only a few bits of the story that drag when you're rewatching it. Allison, how about you? What was your first impression of this?
1: Oh well, apropos of the story, I sort of had three different phases of reaction. So I didn't remember the title of it, mm. of the story, but I had seen well parts of it. Maybe I was shown the entire thing, but I was only conscious for parts of it. So, you know, like when people put costumes on cats and the cat tries to sort of wriggle out <laughs> by rubbing its shoulders against the floor. Any beloved story dealing with the fourth Doctor, I kind of want to wriggle out of because so many people bring such love and such expertise to the story that I'm very intimidated by uh, being a novice, even though that's my my whole job here. So I was interested in reading it, but intimidated by having to, to, to speak of it at all. Second phase was the title, Agopolis, I thought, are they seriously going to do like sci-fi gospel of John? And the answer is yes, kind of. Mm -hmm. And then my impression of the actual cover was sort of a Photoshop of Roger Delgado overlaid with Ray Fine who would have been far too young for that at the time this first came <laughs> oh my out. God, it is. But well, so so once again in my role as ignorant person <laughs> who has seen very little of the original series, I have weirdly formed some kind of attachment to the Roger Delgado portrayal of the master having only seen clips of it maybe only one entire episode. I feel like in the novelizations there's a strong sense of when it's Somebody else, not my dad, not the real master, not the original master. So I actually haven't been interested in a master story since the one that I knew was the last appearance of Roger Delgado. Okay. So looking at the the cover, I thought, yeah, it's kind of the master, but kind of off and and kind of wrong.
0: Yeah, because he's definitely a different incarnation of the master the same way the doctor goes into different incarnations, even though there is kind of a... uh, Base masteriness to him, the same way that, that <laughs> we talk of a doctor being a
1: doctory doctor. The basic mastery. Yeah,
0: something along those lines. What about our other participants, uh, Jason, Dave, and uh, Rick? What were your first impressions of this when you first saw it? I want to make this properly interactive.
4: So, hi, this is Jason speaking. This was my very first novelization. And I know on my show, Doctor Who Literature, I've talked a bit about how my very first books that I owned were Invasion of Time, Destiny of the Daleks, and Doctor Who and the Cybermen. But as I was just getting into the show at 11 years old, one of my school friends gave me a copy of Legopolis to read because I didn't understand the whole thing about regeneration and the doctor changing leads. So he gave me this book during a free period in the sixth grade, and I read about 80 pages in less than an hour. And I was absolutely hooked. And the tragedy is I would have made it my very first purchase, but I didn't find a copy in the bookstore for months and months and months afterward. So it took me a while before I got to the end. This is consequently my favorite book, not only because I got to it first, but we'll talk about this later. The language in this book is deliciously rich and Mm -hmm. Bidmeet is a fantastic author. And I mean that in the Highest sense of praise. This is a full novel, even though it's a short adaptation of a script. And if you ever listen to the Christopher H. Bidmead audiobook of this novelization, and just close your eyes and listen to him sing the words at you, you will see exactly what I mean. Television story is also one of my absolute favorites. And even though it's depressing and there's a lot of death and destruction, it's my comfort food. I'm always made happy when I watch this story on TV because of the acting. And the music, I have a copy of Patty Kingsland's Isolated Soundtrack, so I cannot praise Logopolis enough, and I'm very happy to be here on this recording today. Well, fantastic. Yeah,
0: Bitmead has a background in acting, so that's why he did the audiobook for this one. It's unusual. In fact, I think he is the only author of one of the novelizations to do an audiobook of their own work, and he's very good at it. You're right. He's extremely good at Dave says, I initially thought Ainley was a cheap Delgado copy. It took until his last appearance for me to like him. Yeah, I could see that. Oh, that's right. Jason, you're right. Barry Letts did it as well. Because again, Barry Letts had a background in acting. You're right. I completely forgot about that. Because I'm not really someone to listen to the audiobooks.
1: In terms of this being a sort of false master, if you will, (laughs) in the minds of some of us, I like the way that's incorporated into the story and that this master has literally stolen someone else's body. And that sort of incorporates the discomfort in a way that, that worked for me.
0: Agreed. So, what do we like about this novelization? What is so impressive about this novelization?
3: Everything. <laughs> Everything is impressive about this novelization. It's so good. It's really interesting coming to it. Like the last couple of times I've been on this podcast, where you've been kind enough to invite me on, we've had a lot of Terence Dix, and you get used to Terence Dix's style and his kind of mode of writing. And I, I genuinely admire... Terence Dix as a writer. He is one of the reasons that I became fascinated by literature. He's one of the reasons that I went on to get a degree in literature. He's absolutely pivotal, as he is in many Doctor Who fans of my age, in sort of promoting literacy and getting people interested in reading. It's when you come to something like this novelization, I think you really start to also come up against the limitations of Dix as a writer because there's a lovely kind of fluidity to the way that Christopher H. Bidmead writes. It's got this beautiful kind of rhythm to it that's very different from the kind of very... I guess staccato kind of style of somebody like Terence Dix, who's kind of like, he's got his stock phrases. He bangs it out, dum, dum, dum. And he's very, very effective at that. But there's a, yeah, there's a liquidity to the way that I think Christopher H. Bidmead writes. And he's able to both capture the spirit of the TV show, but also really the essence of it as well. And I think that's why this is such an effective piece of writing. He, he really digs down into the core of what made *Legopolis* such a great piece of television, in, in my eyes. And he's able to replicate it here, but he's also able to add stuff in without just doing huge chunks of rewriting. And that's an incredible skill. So, yeah, TLDR, everything.
0: I completely agree. He has possibly got to be one of the best writers when it comes to transitioning from scene to scene. I'm trying to think of another writer who does it nearly as well, but talking about, you know, Tegan did this. Meanwhile, on the other side of the planet, something else Tegan would have been interested in, what was happening to this character, except he doesn't do it nearly that shoddily as that example I just gave you. He's particularly good at just... As you said, the fluidity, the flow of it is just astonishing.
2: Yeah, his writing style in a way feels like that stereotypical Star Wars wipe where they transition from planet to planet, but it's in word form. But it feels like that. It very much feels like you're just naturally transitioning to see what this other person is doing. So yes, I agree. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. What are some of the things we like most about his writing that makes him stand out?
3: I think the vividness of it really manages to land. He's very good at choosing expressions which manage to encapsulate things that the TV show can't quite manage to do. I trust you'll excuse me if I I briefly read something out which has been mentioned in the chat there. Yes, please. Dave says, better special effects. That's actually an interesting observation because one of the passages I vividly remember from reading this book back when it was originally released in 1982 was the description of the monitor falling off a beam and it's kind of like the way that it's written is sort of like the way that people are dusted in infinity war Mm -hmm. it's that kind of thing but it's so imaginative for 1980 1982 you can't quite believe that he was able to pull off and he does it in such a tiny tiny number of words just the way that the monitor sort of drifts down almost like a leaf and then just puffs away as soon as he hits the floor and obviously there's no way the bbc could achieve that in 1980 and the, the effect that we get in the tv is good for what we could hope for he just sort of fades out and then he's gone to nothing and it's it, you know and both tom becker and anthony and they really do play up the the sheer horror of what it is they've just seen <laughs>
0: More horrible than shrinking people
3: But it's so much more effective On the page and it's so much more effective Because it's quiet That's the whole key to Legopolis, I think It's a quiet piece And that piece of writing around the death of the monitor For me that's the perfect encapsulation Of how *Bidmead* is able to capture That silence around the death of the universe It's not a bang It's not a whimper It's even worse than that It's just silence And the monitor just it's so easy to visualize uh, that puff as he hits the floor. It's a beautiful piece of writing, incredibly effective, very, very evocative. And that to me is the key of, of why Bidmead is such a great
0: writer. I completely agree. In fact, the loudest thing about those sequences on Legopolis is Tegan. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. As you'd expect her to be. Yeah,
3: but that's why we love Tegan. That's why we love her.
1: <laughs> well, it... It's interesting that you mentioned Infinity War because I went to see that in the theater about six weeks after it came out and I had managed to actually not know how it ended. I didn't know that the heroes would lose and it was a genuine shock to me. And in this story, I thought that there was effective use of the usual beats of, you know, the, the countdown is going to stop at three, et cetera, that it seems like the heroes lose in a way that we don't, It's not exactly the same as we usually see, where they are about to lose, all is lost. Someone waves a hand, punches someone else in the face. It's all good. No, Legopolis is dead. Reality is disintegrating. And it's a point that we haven't gotten to in one of these stories before, unless it's on some planet that will then be abandoned by the end of the story.
2: Dalton, how about you? I think that the way that we get inside some of the characters' heads and kind of seeing how they're feeling is really effective, particularly at the beginning when the Doctor's trying to get energy back for the TARDIS to kind of escape this gravity well that they're stuck in, and they come upon Romana's room. And Adric is horrified into silent maybe not horrified, but just kind of the idea that They came upon Romana's room without him realizing it and then seeing it and it kind of reminding him of the loss of her and them having to completely get rid of it and destroy it to escape the situation that they're in. That was really effective. Tegan basically being a screaming banshee for most of the story for good reason. I mean, she's basically thrown into a very unusual situation that for most of the story she's only being explained bits and pieces when Adric has a chance to really get a word out to her. So yeah, I just feel like getting inside people's heads and really seeing like the emotion from them is really effective and including the doctor, you know, there's the part where he tells them that he never chose any of his companions and that basically, you know, they all happened upon him and that they just need to leave.
4: I've never chosen my own company. You said it was you who contacted me and begged me to help you find your father. Tegan, it's, it's your own curiosity that got you into this. Adric, a stowaway.
2: And even that, to me, felt kind of sad, and it felt like a defense mechanism, a wall being put up to protect them, and not necessarily him being mean, but just... Doing that thing we've seen him do before where he's having to be really cutting and biting and rude in a way to protect his companions.
0: Mm -hmm. This is something that I find that Bidmead does particularly well, especially with that sequence, that Adric sees through it Mm -hmm. and realizes why the Doctor's doing it. I have to say, I adore the way Bidmead writes the fourth Doctor and Adric's relationship because I said this at the convention when we did the panel on this episode by itself, that on screen, Tom Baker's dislike and outright hatred for Matthew Waterhouse is palpable. You really can't see him acting past that dislike he has for his co-star, and and Matthew Waterhouse, bless him, doesn't quite have the presence of mind yet to be able to act past it either, and his intimidation of Tom Baker, whereas on the page you get a sense that the doctor is really quite fond of Adric. We're even told that he doesn't mind Adric's constant questions. In fact, he enjoys them because he hasn't had a companion ask him this many questions before and he enjoys it. You don't get that on screen at all. And that moment where Adric sees through it and realizes, oh, he's doing this to make the separation less painful. Yeah shows how strong that relationship is, even as brief as it has been up to that point.
1: I think it's always interesting to see if the different writers like the companions because they generally didn't develop the character. They're just handed the character to work with. And I thought it was interesting to see that Bidmi did seem to like both companions. Mm -hmm. One of the things I found irritating at first and then thought was terrific is that Tegan is having a separate adventure for most of the story. Yes. Mm In a way that I thought was irritating and disjointed at first until I saw how it was developing that she's portrayed as young in such a way that she can't possibly experience the same thing the doctor is experiencing. She's actually described at one point as a concrete thinker instead of an abstract thinker. as if it were a cognitive stage of development that obviously she's long past as a young adult. She's not a three-year-old. But even though she literally experiences death of a sort in this story with St. Vanessa, she just doesn't have the sort of gift or burden of experience so far to think of mortality in the same way that the doctor does. And so even if she'd been experiencing all of the same events that he and Adric had the entire time, well, Adric is like this a bit as well. She still would be having a very different experience.
3: True. Two points to pick up on that, really. I think, firstly, Alison, I completely agree with you, but that's also that's why I love Tegan because she's very rare in the in the classic show for being a companion who actually reacts the way that someone would in that situation. <laughs> she's not a programmatic character. She doesn't just turn up and yes, Doctor, and she gets on with stuff like she's she's and she's awkward and she's got a life which extends out beyond the TARDIS. In fact, I, I may have mentioned this the last time we spoke. I can't remember, but I think she's every much. ...as a model for Rose as aces. She's the first companion that's got a real family. We meet three different aspects of her family... ...and her her grandfather... Her cousin and her aunt She's got a job that we actually see her do At some point, unlike, say, Sarah For example, and she's she Feels like a fully rounded human being In the way that almost none Of the classic companions Really do, Ace certainly does But I think Tegan, yeah, is every bit A, a, a progenitor for, for Rose as, as Ace is, and that's why I love her I love the fact that she's awkward And she really pisses people off During this story, and she's shrieky <laughs> and she's and like, I get why people are Turned off by that I really do But it's exactly Why I love her so much And very much As a sidebar Why I was so thrilled She was back For Jodie's finale Anyway that's a separate story Um, The other thing I was going to say was um, I think Christopher H. Bidmead Might be the person Who writes for Adric Best I really think He captures the essence Of Adric as the character should function, separate from both the kind of slightly contrived, you know, pickpockety, Oliver Twisty <laughs> kind of origin, which is just nonsense, and also separate from Matthew Waterhouse's performance. I, I don't mind Matthew Waterhouse's performance in season 18, and season 18 is my favourite uh, season of Doctor Who bar none, so it'd be a bit weird if I Did criticise him, I think it goes very much Downhill next season, but again, that's A a separate story, (laughs) but I think The way that Bidmead gets that teacher Pupil, almost father-son kind of Relationship that the Doctor and Adric Have, comes across incredibly Well on the page And and I, uh, I, yeah, I just Think that the way he's able to take What can come across as quite irritating On screen, and find a way of Channelling that into, like, that natural Curiosity, that kind of Boyish enthusiasm and yeah okay Sometimes he gets a wee bit carried away with himself But that's what young boys do And that's the thing to remember about both Adric And Matthew Waterhouse he's a young Lad he's got no experience of the world He's got no experience of the Universe beyond you know the Starliner oh and also some planet There was a vampire on and some Grey tower in the middle of <laughs> bloody nowhere Like he's completely inexperienced So he doesn't he doesn't get all These cues and that scene with Adric coming across Romana's room I think is another lovely encapsulation again i think that's better done in the novel than it is on screen but it's a lovely encapsulation of the idea that he's used to permanence Mm -hmm. like he spent his whole life in a a fixed environment even with mistfall and all that kind of stuff in those areas he's used to having a fixed environment the idea that you could take romana's room after she's gone, and then also not only lose the person, but lose all reminders of her, that's not something that he's really meaningfully encountered before. I think that's a lovely little piece of characterization. And again, Bidme's writing does such a good job of bringing that across in a way that the script doesn't. And I think, if we're being completely honest, Matthew Waterhouse at that point probably couldn't have managed either.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I agree. I was actually saying at one of the panels that the problem that people tend to have with Adric isn't with Adric, but with Matthew Waterhouse. And someone else said, well, you have to bear in mind, he was a gay teenager in the 1980s. And I said, and so was I. So I understand what was going on with him. <laughs> but that still doesn't excuse some of the things that um, he wasn't able to do quite at the time. And to my mind, still can't if you listen to him on audio. But that's just me. Other thoughts?
3: I love the little fleshed out... Sorry,
0: I'm just taking over now. No, (laughs) please do. I should have warned you that this was a mistake to have me on this episode. Uh, That's why I wanted you to have on wanted to have you on that's what i was trying to stressed.
3: <laughs> best to get that the right way around early on in the book I, th- I love the little fleshed out details that bidmead gives just to slightly add to the world building without pushing it too far so like the fact that aunt vanessa gets described as a film buff because she's got that one line where she says oh uh, you know in the film dear they always use a jack under the car when she's talking to tegan about changing the spare tire she has that mm-hmm. That it's just a tiny little detail that just slightly expands the character on screen and that just it's it's that classic kind of Robert Holmes thing if you take one line and suddenly you you get to see so much more of the character it's such a tiny little detail but he does that a lot during those kind of Tegan and Aunt Vanessa scenes we get a little bit more again when Tegan is getting frustrated when she's running around in the TARDIS and she starts to think of things that are kind of within her frame of reference, even even like that slightly clumsy line about the outback and how, you know, she worked on her father's farm and all that kind of stuff. Like, it's a bit clunky on screen. And dearly though I love her, it's not Janet Fielding's finest performance moment but again on page it comes across as so much more naturalistic because yeah that's her frame of reference that's how she does stuff and Bidmead is really good at being able to capture that element on the page just using a couple of lines i think that sort of familial relationship between aunt vanessa and tegan comes across really really well on the page as well there's a good rapport on screen but on the page mm-hmm. it just reads again it's that fluidity but it just reads so naturally these are just two people who are in a family together and getting on with their life somebody's offered you a lift to your job it all goes a bit wrong and then really wrong but that's just like how families kind of get on and they get frustrated with each other and annoyed that you can't keep a proper spare tire in the boot of your car or whatever and all that stuff it's just so naturalistic and all that early stuff with vanessa and tegan feels like a real lived-in relationship and it's great he's so good at capturing that
1: and it would have been very easy to characterize tegan is just screeching and bossy you know telling Aunt vanessa how to drive her own car for example and uh, we, we have a lot more than that i, I like that and vanessa is the one who's good at managing people like you said you know Well, you know, in the the films, don't they always put a jack under the car? Instead of, you idiot, you're going to be crushed, or something (laughs) like that. And it's a way that Romana might have tried to manage the doctor, Uh but it's a characterization of someone who's managing the person who's going to be the new companion. We get this idea that Tegan is going to have no idea how to manage the doctor. She's too young, she's too green to have those kinds of techniques yet, and I like that.
0: Also going back to what we've said about the way Bidmead writes Aunt Vanessa, There's one moment that stands out reading this novelization to me this time. The fact that just before she dies, she lifts the car tire and is trying to throw it at the master. And on screen, you notice it and you don't think anything of it. But here he actually writes in her panic and her adrenaline rush at being confronted with the horrifying visage of Anthony Ainley, apparently. She lifts this tire off the ground, which is way too heavy for her, and tries to throw it at him. And it's like, oh, yeah, you're right. So it's minor moments like that that stand out to me. And he's extremely good at those. Don't you look like you were about to say something.
2: I was just thinking about the way that we have basically, for probably the first half of the book, we have two characters that are stalking people. Or that we don't really know who they are. So we clearly we have the master who kills the police officer and kills Aunt Vanessa and kind of stalking around in the TARDIS when Tegan's in there in the cloister. But then we also have the watcher that when people are seeing him, they're also getting like weird feelings or kind of confused feelings and not quite knowing what he they are. And it's feels like it's supposed to be, is the Watcher the person that is killing these people? Is this a benevolent person? This felt like something that I've seen in the new Doctor Who series, where there's an iteration that's the Doctor that's not the Doctor somehow, or there's a being, a version of him, and also that the Doctor says that they've slipped into the future. Yes. But I, I did enjoy that, where even though I caught on to it, how there was this like moment where you're not sure if that's the same character and what their motives and intentions are. Mm-hmm. Bidme
0: does a huge amount of foreshadowing there. In fact, that's a sort of foreshadowing you don't necessarily get in the televised version. I I don't know if JG you agree with me on that one, but I don't really see that foreshadowing in the TV version nearly as much as I see it on the uh the page this time.
3: I do agree with that. I also want to kind of pick up on something that was said there, which is that I think. Adric's confusion as to the master-watcher kind of dichotomy comes across much better on the page as well. I I mean, I, 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 I love... A televised Legopolis more than oxygen, but if I was to identify one tiny little flaw in it, it probably is that Adric seems a bit thick, not realizing that the that the watcher is the master. Like like that's meant to be his. I'm being as polite as I can. That but that you know like it, the watcher clearly isn't the master, and you know all the kind of slightly indirect replies that the Doctor gives Adric when Adric asks about, especially after the meeting in the bridge. Yeah, just it, they seem slightly. Slightly writerly contrivance to try and continue this idea that, well, we don't really know what the Watcher is and he could be the Master but we know he's not the Master. It's incredibly clear. And Adric is just thick when he doesn't realise it. But on the page, that actually comes across much better, I think Because the ambiguity around the character isn't overemphasised And we don't have a slightly conspicuous and very tall dancer in papier-mâché Waving at you from the <laughs> other side of the road That helps a little bit as well uh, But it's just Adric's understandable confusion Is just very believable on the page And again, I think that very much speaks to the strength of Bidmead as a writer Whereas, yeah, on screen, there's the foreshadowing is... It's mostly Tom Baker looking very distressed.
0: Yeah. In fact, Nissa laughs at Adric on the page when he says, oh, that's the master. And she says, no, 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 that's the doctor's friend. That's the one who brought me here. But you would think that after hearing the watcher talk to him and only remembering the doctor speaking, he'd be like, oh, the reason I'm hearing the doctor speaking is because it's the fucking doctor. But no, he doesn't do that. Jason in the chat says the first line of the book is so gorgeous, it really leans into that foreshadowing. And I just want to read it out because it really does. The whole first paragraph, in fact, events cast shadows before them, but the huger shadows creep over us unseen. When some great circumstance hovering somewhere in the future is a catastrophe of incalculable consequence, you may not see the signs and the small happenings that go before The Doctor did, however, vaguely, which is a lovely, lovely, lovely opening. Mm -hmm. And Dave reminds us that we've had something of The Watcher before, which is something that I wanted to bring up too, because I wanted to talk about The Watcher and whether or not that plot device works the way it's supposed to, because we've had something similar to it in Planet of the Spiders with the Abbot and Cho except it wasn't. (laughs) It was something much weirder there, because they were... Coexistent as individuals in that particular version. And here the Watcher is, as you said, a tall dancer in paper mache waving from across the road. And it's very odd. So I was wondering how you all felt about the Watcher as a plot device.
3: The Watcher of the Bypass just looks like he's like cruising. That's the truth of the matter.
0: Um, but.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Ducky. I think the fundamental difference between Choji and the Watcher is it sort of encapsulated in the way the stories are constructed and what the stories are about. I mean, it's obvious to say about Planet of the Spiders that it's meant to be this kind of Buddhist parallel or Buddhist metaphor, which I suppose it is, and and the Abbot and Choji certainly have sort of fit into that, but. The point of Planet of the Spiders is supposed to be the Doctor addressing his hubris and being cast down for his sin of greed when it comes to knowledge. And so um, in Buddhism and so yin-yang symbolism, then Choji's is the balance against that. The Watcher is concerned with a story obsessed with decay and loss and entropy and the collapse of systems. So in that sense, he both... Is the same and different to Choji, I would say. Um, he's the same in the sense that he's the way out of that collapsing system. The third doctor and his hubris is eventually allowed release through Choji. The doctor dies in Planet of the Spider and Choji helps him regenerate. In this story, the Watcher is also the way out of the collapsed system of entropy. He's the way that the Doctor is able to move forward from the decay and the wasting which has been following him for the the entire season. It also gives a way forward for Doctor Who, sort of paratextually as a TV show to escape the shadow of Tom Baker. But The Watcher is also very different in a way as well because he's not a specific encapsulation of that particular concept, whereas I think Choji is a very deliberate encapsulation of that. So there are similarities, but they're... Yeah, they're both an escape mask. I suppose, in a way, they're both charge vacuum emboitments They're a way out of your closed system to escape the entropy which is closing in around you. And in the case of the third Doctor, the way out is Tom Baker. And in the case of the fourth Doctor, the way out is Peter Davison.
0: Mm. That's a very good way of looking at it. I also want to bring up the comments we've had in the chat. Jason says that Choji was an intentional projection. The Watcher's accidental a ghost from the future that catches the Doctor off guard, which is true. Yeah, that you get that idea that cho is meant to be there and is intended, whereas the Watcher shouldn't be. Dave points out that the Abbot was better at it like Romano was better at controlling regeneration. True, because the Doctor kind of sucks at anything having to do about this. And Jason also says there are two passages in the text that really explain the Watcher well, the very top of 118 and the single paragraph section on page 121. And thank you, by the way. I will say Jason Miller is one of the few guests we've ever had on the show that gives us page numbers, which I'm always appreciative of. Talks about the double doors were ajar, and in the opening loomed the vague outline of the figure that had followed him to the goblins and back, Something distinctly proprietorial about the patient way he waited in the TARDIS entrance sent a chill through the doctor's body. And yeah, it's got that feel of that's exactly what's going on. And 121, I love this because it reminds me of Watchmen. From the door of the TARDIS, the watcher had seen the master retracing his steps to the computer room as he saw now the doctor's perilous ascent of the Pharos antenna these were the conditions of the moment he knew had to come in his mind was a clock its hands closing on the inevitable vertical midnight which is poeticus
2: mm-hmm.
0: yeah it's beautiful lovely lovely it's beautiful. <laughs> On a
3: broader sort of subject, I really regret the fact that Christopher H. Bidmead hasn't written more. I obviously love Legopolis. I adore Castrovalva, beyond, again, all sort of hope and reason. Really? And I really, even if it's a little bit of a step down, I love Frontius as well. And I wish he had written more. I think he's an incredible talent who never quite managed to come to fruition in the way that say a a Philip Hinchcliffe or a Robert Holmes or someone like that did he's just so good with words and that's such an obvious thing to say about a quality writer but that's what it is he's got this great gift when it comes to being able to express himself and I wish that he had contributed more to Doctor Who, especially I would have loved to have seen him write for the sixth Doctor. That would have oh, been incredible. That would, be... that would just be glorious. But the fact that we've got three amazing stories out of him is kind of a blessing on its own. But yeah, he's such a good writer. I just desperately wish that he had been able to contribute more to the overall show. I I, I don't want to describe him as marginal. I don't think you could describe anybody who's involved with Tom Baker's last season as being marginal but he also sort of is as well. Yes. You know, he's so over I, I mean JNT overshadows almost everything and then the loss of Tom Baker overshadows everything and then the arrival of the new doctor overshadows everything. Like he does slightly get lost in the shuffle and I think that's a real injustice. He's an amazingly talented writer and I'm just going to have to stop gushing now.
0: Well, we're going to have you back on for Valva if you're up for that in February, because I know you specifically begged me for that as well. (laughs) And definitely for Frontios, because Frontios, I have to say, and this is just looking ahead, but Frontios, I think I actually prefer to either of these two books, even though this time around, when I was a kid, I could not get through this book. For the same reason, I could not get through David Whitaker's version of The Crusaders. The prose style was a little bit too expansive for me at that time. Whereas this time I took to it like a duck to water. It was just like, holy shit, how did I not know this book was this good for this long? It is just unparalleled in so many ways. I do want to talk about the newer characters, though, because Dalton Nissa coming in was a surprise for you. Yes. It was kind of a surprise for Allison because she forgot it, <laughs> and that's understandable.
1: Well, but when I saw the previous uh, the episode previously, I wouldn't have had any context for who she was.
0: Mm, mm.
1: I wouldn't have seen her before.
0: Okay. How do we feel about her inclusion in the story? Because in some ways, the Watcher, I hate to say this, if we're not looking at the Watcher as some sort of philosophical extension of the Doctor, he ends up in a plot device way being the only way that Nyssa can get into the story. Mm-hmm. because the Doctor just doesn't have time to go to Trocken and pick her up and bring her in. That's what the Watcher do. But in every other way, how do we feel about her inclusion and her being brought back? Because she's kind of a last-minute addition. J&T took up her option as a companion during the filming of uh, Keeper of Trocken.
1: So much of the story is about the specter of death and loss that I thought she was there largely as a device to be a person who's just experienced it who's already had this this loss and to show sort of the ache and desperation of it to make it a little more incarnate. I agree. She
2: definitely felt like she was there to maybe get some closure with understanding what happened to her father. But I don't know that I would have expected her to carry on past this. So very much how seeing the, the master realized In a full-bodied form with this story, she feels like a carryover from uh, Keeper of Traken and kind of wrapping up that story, but not necessarily something that is going to move us forward. Whereas Tegan feels very natural as like, okay, yeah, she's going to be a new companion because she's kind of happened upon the Doctor the way that we've seen some other companions. You know, she kind of just falls into him whereas nissa felt very intentionally brought into the situation although now that i say that so was romana so yeah yeah true true it's
3: fine that's 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 the best (laughs) it's fine it's not great. It's, there's a, there's a slight clunkiness to it. There's a slight lack of elegance about it. But I think the question is also, like, it, it, does it work? Yeah, it kind of works. It kind of gets away from it. I completely agree, by the way, by saying, like, it doesn't necessarily feel like she belongs in any stories after this. And I don't mean that as any disrespect to either necessarily Sarah Sutton. But there's a logical conclusion that happens here that isn't then followed through in Castrovalva and the subsequent season. But I think... There is so much going on in this story. I don't know how else you would get her in. I mean, you could argue, well, just don't. And that's a perfectly legitimate yeah. point of view as well. She, she's not necessary for this story per se. But if you have to find a way of shoehorning her in, it's fine, I guess. Again, it's, it's a bit of a writerly contrivance, but that can only have been something that Christopher H. me just got landed with. I'm sure J&T just knocked on his door one day and said, Oh, by the way, this is in your story. Oh, he for did. For fuck's sake. <laughs> right, fine. Well, that's fine. Adric walked round the corner and found her. What do you want?
0: <laughs> that's like, okay, that'll do well, I find that Bitmeat handles it better on the page than he does on screen, because you're right. She oh, I completely agree. Yeah, Adric yeah. walks around the corner. There she is. The watcher's off in the distance. Tegan says, who's Nissa? And he says, oh, she's the friend we met on Trocken, in this very kind of Scooby-Doo and the gang kind of way. And you see these two later best friends meeting in the background, kind of like, hi, hi. And they get on with the story. But here it's handled a lot better, and her being used by the Master and then betrayed again by the Master and her utter rage at it comes across on the page so much better here than it ever does on screen and nothing against Sarah Sutton. Sarah Sutton doesn't do rage. Adric,
3: I can't see Traken.
2: Traken should be...
3: I can't even see Matilla Oriensis. The master killed my stepmother, and then my father,
0: and now the world that I grew up in. She's not capable of delivering it. She kind of does it in the audio dramas because they finally unpack all of this stuff with her anger at the master and her loss of her father in the audio dramas. But you're right, in the later episodes, it's barely mentioned which is just ridiculous given how much of a tragic character she ends up being and could have been.
3: I mean, that's generally true of the companions here as well. I mean, you know, um, a rough guess. I think Aunt Vanessa is mentioned twice after Legopolis. once in Enlightenment, yes. where there's a picture of her in the in the room, and once in Power of the Doctor. That's it. Like the master gets like one offhanded comment About having seen a little of her aunt And that's that's very oh. funny <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it's the same gag the doctor gets here yes. you, oh, well, how, oh yeah well, I've seen a little of her But that's it That's You know that like the fact that her close family member Has been murdered by this incredibly evil creature From another planet It just never really comes up. And the fact that Nyssa's father was murdered by the Master and then her entire planet is annihilated just never really comes up either. But that's not the fault of Legopolis. That's the fault of the subsequent stories that don't pick up on threads, which are very clearly being laid down here. And I think to the credit of Christopher H. Bidmead, I think that is deliberate. I think those threads aren't picked up on here, but he is intentionally leaving a trail of breadcrumbs, emotional breadcrumbs, if you will, to give to other writers who will then be able to come back to it because both these characters suffer incredible trauma they both go through you know what ought to be an absolute ringer of a situation and Nobody picks up on it. That's not Legopolis' fault. It's not Christopher H. Bidme's fault. And and Tony, you're absolutely right that rage is not really Sarah Sutton's strongest point as an actor. But it's such a waste that nothing is ever really done with that until Big Finish come along.
0: Yeah, and the fact that sympathy is not Tom Baker's strong suit. So when he breaks the news of... (laughs) That's an understatement. Yeah, when he breaks the news of Auntie Vanessa's death, he's like, "Tegan, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And he pushes her off into the corner to have a cry.
1: <laughs> it's ridiculous. Oh I'll God. show you the
0: scene at some point. Auntie yes.
1: Yes, I'm so sorry to you. I'm so, I'm so sorry.
0: The master's already at work on Logopolis. I'm going to stop him if it's the last thing I do. Whereas on the page, the doctor is like, I am so sorry. If there's anything I can do, I will adventure. And it feels... Much more like the doctor actually cares, whereas on screen, no, Tom Baker couldn't give a shit. He's going to be getting his paycheck and is going to be gone by the end of the day. Off to the barber to get his curls chopped off, which is exactly what he did after the story wrapped so he wouldn't get recognized on the street. Jason says it's creepy in Time Flight when the master calls Nissa my child, which biologically she is, and Time Flight is written by Legopolis's director, which is probably one of the two... Only good things about time flight. <laughs> no spoilers, but yeah, that's something we get to look forward to later on. God help us all. JG, you can be on that one too, if you like.
3: <laughs> uh, oh, I'd, I'd love to. I, I'm never unhappy to have a conversation about a plasmaton. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm there for that, absolutely.
0: <laughs> yes, because plasmatons, you know, you just can't get away from it.
3: No. And, and your dishes are sparkly afterwards, so what else do you want? <laughs>
0: God, where were we? <laughs> we were talking about these characters not getting the wrap-up later that they should, but they certainly get it here. And that's one of the really masterful things that Bidme does. I do want to quickly touch on the master here because at the panel about Legopolis, they said, what's one of the other things you like about this? And I said, this is the Anthony Ainley master at his least camp. Mm he's still camp. He's always going to be camp. Dear God, is he camp. But this is his least camp. And Allison, you said something about him looking like Roger Delgado on the cover. You're absolutely right. And this is the closest we get to a Delgado-esque master in this incarnation, the fact that he just willy-nilly kills anybody who comes across his path. He kills that first policeman simply because he can He kills Aunt Vanessa. And with exuberance. With exuberance, yeah. He's absolutely into it and laughing the whole time. He kills Aunt Vanessa. He kills most of the Logopolitans. in fact.
1: Giggles and cackles his
0: way through the whole thing. He cackles his way through the whole thing. And something on the page that he does that isn't in the televised version, when he almost kills the technician at the Pharaohs Project, when he goes back for his TARDIS, he goes ahead and kills him anyway. Yeah. And it's like, he's just vicious and a mad dog the way you want to kind of put down. So I'm wondering how we feel about this iteration of the
2: master in these early days. Well, as I said earlier, he's an asshole. (laughs) Just (laughs) plain, Plain and simple. Like he is, this is him just being petty as fuck, as the kids say. And he does not care about anything but himself and his own survival. Mm -hmm. and lording power over people.
1: How do we feel about the Doctor giving Adric uh, some Milton and portraying the Master as like literal Lucifer? Not literal, but like Lucifer.
0: That's new. That's on the page. And that wasn't in the televised version. And I have to admit, I love that. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I adore that idea of fobbing Adric off with Milton and Adric being intelligent enough to understand it and to draw that parallel on his own. And it kind of works for me.
3: I think that's kind of what I meant earlier about the way that Bidmead kind of writes Adric better than anybody else does, because one of the most irritating things about his whole star for mathematical excellence is that, like, the only real indication we get that he's clever is occasionally the Doctor will ask him to do a, a sum, and then he can. It's kind of... (laughs) that's kind of flat though isn't it whereas at least getting him to appreciate literature getting him to be able to understand the parallels between what he's reading and the situation he's stuck in it demonstrates adric's intelligence in a way that most writers just don't get it goes kind of above and beyond the lazy cliche of wow he can do a sum dead quick and that's such a lovely little additional detail to give a character like adric that's not the sort of attention that anyone's really given Adric.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I'm trying very desperately not to laugh at the phrase, Adric can do sums dead quick, knowing what comes <laughs> <it."> <laughs> uh, Obviously, that was very intentional. Yeah,
1: exactly. Adric is still there for us to feel better that. I feel like he, he's reading poetry. He understands the story. He thinks there's a lot of wasted space on the page. <laughs> yes. I mean, maybe it's like a critique of the humanities education and his society of origin. But we're still supposed to feel like we're better than Adric. I, I do have a question about Adric. Does yeah. he actually perform some kind of BMX trick on screen? Oh, my God.
0: No,
3: he does not. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, if only. How great would that be?
2: Yep. Isn't that wonderful? What is the deal with him climbing on top of the TARDIS and throwing a bike? (laughs) Like,
0: what? (laughs) He does not do it on screen, and I think the reason why is because Bidmead having Adric pretend to have a bike accident on screen, Mm. and then pushing the bike into the policeman on his way into the TARDIS, is a little clunky. Of course, climbing up on top of the TARDIS and throwing it at them (laughs) like Hulk, is a little <laughs> flunkier in its own way, but
1: oh man, I misread this. Yes, he does throw it. I thought he was like, no, <laughs> talked about the arc of the bike through the air. I thought he was riding it. No, it is that on screen? Yeah. Oh god,
0: that would be hilarious. <laughs>
1: How did the oh insurer god. feel about
2: it? <laughs> I would give anything to see. Oh my god, Adric in the X Games. Yes, Adric in the <laughs> X Games because.
0: I'm sorry, one of the things I do like about Matthew Waterhouse is the, the boy has buns of steel. <laughs> so I could really handle seeing him on a bike. But anyway, I'm sorry. That's that's terrible. He does not get on top of the TARDIS and toss it from there. Which makes more sense thematically and story-wise, if you think about it, if only because why would Adrick know what a bike is? Yeah, He wouldn't know to be able to say, help me, I've had an accident. It's like, I'm sorry. I'm thinking about Matthew Waterhouse's buns again.
3: We'll just leave you to your fantasies for the time being, Oh, we'll get back to them later.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The special effects in my mind are always so much better. Although at one point I thought maybe that he was making fun of the effects on screen because he talks about Legopolis not having a lot of signs of life from the air. And I thought it was maybe a kind of a dig at... Them having a matte painting but not having the budget to do the like the little transparency where you have motion through it. That's true.
0: Legopolis doesn't have a lot of activity and in fact that aerial shot does. <laughs> we can't
1: afford activity.
0: It is rather static, but at least here we've got a explanation for it in story because they're all in their little hovel sweatshops, as Tegan puts it.
1: It might be her first day on the job, but she's already been to I think the flight attendants union orientation. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I have to say, she really does slide into things very smoothly when she gets over her pre-flight jitters, doesn't she? She's just like, oh, alien planet. Okay, I'm fine. I'm going to talk to the manager now about how these workers are treated.
3: Well, you know, air hostesses are trained in, like, crisis management and how to respond to difficult situations, so let's assume that that was a really clever, sly piece of characterization and just quietly move on.
1: Yes. It's too bad they didn't have an occasion to have her do an evacuation. I'm- friend who was a flight attendant, they had to do these sort of war games to recertify every few years where you practice evacuating a 747 and she tries to evacuate Logopolis. She
0: kind of does something like that in Time Flight later, which is something I appreciate about that story. Again, maybe that's the third good thing about that story.
1: But it is a promising characterization that she's not going to only scream and be frightened. Yes, she's definitely going to do that. But she's also going to have curiosity and sense of adventure. And it it is promising.
0: Yeah, I will say that about Tegan because I would not characterize her as a screaming companion.
1: Is she the actress who says we were all screamers or is that someone else?
0: That's right. You saw Janet Fielding at the women's panel that year at Chicago
1: TARDIS because you went without me. Like I thought it was like her signature thing that she says at all her appearances. Something like, make no mistake, we were all screamers. Yeah. Being told she was there for the dads.
0: There for the dads. Yeah, that's exactly what she says, because Janet Fielding is one of the strongest feminist actresses to ever appear in classic Doctor Who. And so she was constantly pushing against that whole thing. We're there for the dads. We're there to scream. We're there to let our boobs out every once in a while, which was not her fault but it happened.
1: The character is not written like that at all, I thought, Mm -hmm. in this adaptation. Not written as a screamer not written yep. as just a pair of boobs and a uniform running around. She is not. And
0: a lot of that can be attributed to Janet Fielding pushing back. A lot of it can be attributed to the fact that this character just isn't characterized that way, which is really a blessing. Unfortunately, as we'll see in later stories, that more abrasive quality to her is going to get played up so often that Peter Davison loves Janet Fielding, not too fond of Teens. I get the impression. (laughs) Yeah, which is interesting because Tegan is to Peter Davison's doctor what Jamie McCrimmon is to Patrick Troughton's doctor. She's going to be there for almost every story, Mm. period. So get used to Tegan because you're going to see a lot of her. I'd like to sort of loop slightly back to what we
3: were saying about the master, which is I do think he is well-characterised on the page here, separated from Anthony Anley's giggling lunatic of a performance, which <laughs> I I genuinely enjoy. But, you know, it's, I mean, ever since the Sea Devils, the master's been a panto villain, so the fact that he's gone sort of full Widow Twanky in this is not really a, a <laughs> demerit in my eyes. Um, but... Separated from that I do think he's a pretty effective Kind of Especially the way that he kind of tortures Tegan in the Cloisters I think the way that he's Taunting her and the way that he's Just doing it for his own Kind of kicks I suppose Because he can I think that works really effectively and that nastiness of the characterization like Tony you mentioned the fact that he goes back and kills that technician Mm -hmm. it does help to give him an edge in the page which is absent a little bit in the televised version particularly once we get towards the end of the story when how can I put this politely Anthony Inley fully embraces all aspects of the character, particularly in the control room, where lunatic no longer seems like an appropriate adjective. There has to be another word to describe whatever the (laughs) hell he's doing there. It's not acting, but it's something. It's a presence. Whereas on the page, like the fact that the master is trying to turn this whole situation to his advantage, it's not credible but it works and again I think that's really just down to the skill of Bidmead as a writer he's got this opportunity to make what is otherwise you know a plan to blackmail the entire universe with a cassette player (laughs) kind of seem credible and you know I mean however good that would be for Sony's Walkman sales it doesn't come across as wholly convincing on screen but separated from that there's a real credibility to the way that the master is desperately, desperately grasping everything, and even although he's responsible for this situation and that also comes across really well in the stage, like, he almost feels guilty for what he's done, realising that he has really gone too far this time and yet still he can't help himself still there's an opportunity for him to control the CVE and he'll jump in and take it all that stuff is so well put together by Bidmead and it lends it a credibility which depending on your point of view and your attitude towards anthony Ainley, might not quite be the case on
0: screen (laughs) this is true i'm
2: just picturing the master holding a a cassette player over his head and playing peter gabriel for the whole
3: universe (laughs) (laughs) come on nobody's that evil no not even anthony (laughs) ainley
2: no john cusack (laughs) oh god no one could be that evil
1: when you have a recurring villain, I, I think it's important to not make them too much of like an old deer, too much of a sort of dark reflection of the hero to the point where you forget that they're evil. Mm-hmm. So uh, you've got to re-up your wickedness, I think, periodically with the Master. I think so. You can't develop too much of a nostalgic sheen. Mm.
0: Though, well, I, I don't want to say more about that, to be honest, because we're going to be seeing the Master uh couple more times before the end of this podcast
2: well it almost feels like he's like course correcting for being nice to the doctor for the little bit that he is so he's like yeah wait 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 wait, wait. no i can't do that after their predator handshake you know um (laughs) (laughs) let's be friends and then he's like wait no no forget that yeah I'll, i'll say
0: that definitely comes across on the page
1: well, the thing that I, like I guess, we're talking about first impressions that I was not looking forward to is oh gosh, we're going to do a The Doctor is Jesus story, which I have a very low threshold of attention mm. for, and which is exactly the story that was done when the master was brought, when David Tennant was the doctor. It irritates me on a variety of levels. So I thought, just from the title, you know, if that's what we're going to have. We're going to have something like In the Beginning with the Doctor. And the doctor was God, and <laughs> something like that. You know, like I said, we're going to do a whole Gospel of John with the doctor, and the doctor we live and move and have our being. He upholds all things by the word of his power. I think some of that's Hebrews, and we did have that element almost word for word, just not with the doctor. And that was a nice surprise. So we did have this concept of Logopolis, but it's not the doctor; it's someone and 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 something, rather I should say, else. So related to that, the thing that I was not looking forward to going in, and indeed when I was first reading the story, was sort of a framework that this won't be a story. This will be a joint between stories. You know, a joint with no limb or trunk. Sort of to not have too abrupt a break between doctors. We know we're going to have different companions, different doctors. We're just trying to write a transition here. And I think the way that that was rescued, which I know might sound like too faint a praise uh, to some, is that the writer creates a story that's about liminal spaces, mm-hmm. that's about joints. Often in a very physical way, like we've spoken of Romana's room. And we spent a lot of time before wandering in the hallways of the TARDIS, but a particular way that we're wandering the, in the corridors of the TARDIS, the police box that sometimes appears to be the actual physical police box, sometimes our quote unquote TARDIS, sometimes a master's TARDIS, and then even Legopolis itself in a way that it's not in some kind of alternate dimension or reality. We're told explicitly it is the universe, the keystone to the universe, it's controlling the physical universe, but it's not separate from it as some other separate space. We even had that description of the Doctor and Adric doing the sort of like recursive running of laps in and out of the yes. control room. It seems identical every time, but we're like the light is thicker, yellower, the temperature drops as they go through. And so I, what I expected to be the weakness of the story is it's just a transition between stories rather than a story in and of itself really became the strength of sort of parking on that idea of being between spaces.
0: And I could understand that because this is the middle story of a trilogy that is meant to introduce the concept of a new Doctor. We get Keeper of Trocken, which it reintroduces the Master and introduces this. So we get this one that introduces Tegan and introduces, reintroduces regeneration, I should say. And then we get the next story that introduces the new Doctor.
1: Well, and the trick is always when you recast the Doctor, you have to kill the Doctor. But it can't be fatal. And that's hard to do. So I, I thought it was an interesting story about bringing the sense of, I mean, They have to, in some sense, kill off Tom Baker on screen, but not fatally. But you have to have some sense of loss. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if when this aired, people knew it was coming. would the the viewing audience have known this was tom baker's last episode oh we knew okay oh we knew this was
3: coming this was big news and like like the the main news bulletins across the country this was this was a well-known fact
1: so uh, i'm going to drop it through the floor tonally here and talk about the death of my mother earlier this year and no one will be able to top that or undercut it uh uh, i'm going to go a little dark here so I'll, i'll A lot of us have had uh, more experience of death maybe in recent years than previously in life. So earlier in the year, my mom died after a couple of years of health problems. And even though this was significantly less serious, a, a cat died 10 years later after about two years of weirdly similar sort of health problems. Then a colleague of mine died a couple of days after that, but it was quite sudden. So in terms of the theme being not the Doctor is Jesus, but the theme was entropy. The thing that resonated as I read it was, uh, it's the actual entropy sets in here, is that there wasn't one thing but a series of sort of breakdowns and decalcifications of the universe as Logopolis died and failed to hold it together and how that is often the experience of sort of natural death as opposed to things that are sudden or, or accidents or, or something like that is a lot of different things fail. You know ultimately what's coming. You don't know what's going to be the thing at the end. And so going back to our story here, it turned out to be not a story about, oh, well, the master is Lucifer and the doctor is the Logos. And in fact, we had something a little different. The master was is Lucifer here, but not literally. And we have something a, a little different as... The logos. I thought a nice part here is when they decide to essentially euthanize the TARDIS. Mm-hmm. The thing that they are planning for and afraid of anticipating is the water pressure coming in. And of course, that doesn't happen at all. They're going to drown the TARDIS and the Thames and they don't quite manage to do it. They open the door, there's no water, etc. And the things that happen are the things that they didn't necessarily know ahead of time to be afraid of. They knew to be afraid. They planned for the wrong thing. And so that's not one individual thing so much as a buildup of different plot elements that I thought worked with the theme of entropy and a series of different kinds of cracks and fractures and breakdowns. And like I said, almost literal decalcification, because I'm thinking of my mom here, but also the the descriptions of things like literally sort of breaking apart into dust towards the end here that work to coalesce both a sense of unpredictability and adventure. And we don't know precisely what's going to happen next in terms of the plot elements, but the overwhelming sense of doom of the doctor is not making it out of the story Mm -hmm. or not this doctor, not this doctor that we know. Something will make it out. We don't know who or what. I think this is what didn't quite work with Nissa was trying to bring back this idea of finality of death with with her grief, and it didn't quite set up, I thought, Mm. in this story, but I thought that's what he was going for. And I think that's why I'll ultimately take away from this is that, yes, it's a transition between stories. Yes, it's about liminal spaces. We don't quite know what's going to happen, but we know exactly what's going to happen, but we don't know how we're going to get there. So that sort of messiness and lack of resolution is, I think, what worked for me in the end. Mm.
0: I think you also, in saying that, Allison redeemed one part of the story that has never worked for me, which is when you brought up the euthanization of the TARDIS, because the idea of dropping the TARDIS into the Thames and flushing the Master out has got to be one of the most batshit crazy things that has ever come through the Doctor's mind, even in Extremis. It
1: seemed pretty weak. Let's just draw on it in a few feet of water.
0: Yeah, exactly. The Thames, of all places. And all because he didn't want them to have to swim too far to shore. But you're right, (laughs) on the page, it comes across much more that this is them being willing to say goodbye to the TARDIS and strand themselves on Earth. And there is a finality to it. And it feels much more solid as a
1: plot idea. But then it doesn't happen then. They're ready for it then. They are prepared for what actions they will take. They're prepared to lose the TARDIS. They don't lose it then. They lose something else at a different time.
0: Right. And right after that, the Watcher shows up and has his conversation with the Doctor, verifying what the Doctor was fearing and saying, okay, this is what has to happen, because you imagine that's what that conversation was. It's the Doctor saying, I thought it was going to be this, and the Watcher saying, no. You've got to be ready for this, this, and
1: this. There's no false dread. There's just misplaced dread. Yes. Yeah,
0: exactly. Anything else you want to say about this? We have to talk about the cloister Bell. Yes, we do.
1: <laughs> Which is extremely important. I've never told you about it before. Yeah,
0: because we've never heard it before. And luckily, the doctor says, by the way, if you ever have to get hold of me, use the cloister Bell. Oh, there it is now. It's like, oh, for fuck's sake. That's <laughs> <laughs> one of those few things that even the best Doctor Who stories have this sort of necessity of plot where you get something introduced two seconds before you need it. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what happens with the cloister bell here. I assume that's why you brought it up, Dalton, because it is going to... And it's not in a cloister, as Dave points out. It most definitely is not in a cloister.
4: (laughs) We don't know
3: that it's not in a cloister. We never see the cloister bell. (laughs) It's just called a cloister bell. The doctor hears it in a place that's not a cloister, but we don't know that the bell (laughs) itself is not somewhere
1: else in a TARDIS (laughs) cloister. Okay. Dave,
0: you've been put in your place. You
1: had material <laughs> prepped for that. You anticipated that objection. We were ready to defend the honor of the cloister bell. I think you did. Big cloister bell is here for cloister propaganda. Yeah,
2: big big cloister bell button here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I just bring it up because it's it's something that I've seen and know from watching the new series. Yes, you do. So this being the first time that it's brought up, used as kind of a warning. Bell. Mm-hmm. it it's, seems important as it as a character, or as a as something within the universe.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, and and it's as, in this story I'm sorry to have to say it this way But in this story it also functions As a symbolic representation It's literally for whom the bell tolls Yes, yes That's yes. the whole point Ask, or, or if you prefer, ask not for whom the bell tolls It tolls for thee The bell literally tolls for the Doctor In this story I've always kind of liked that aspect about the Cloyster bell I'm sorry, you probably weren't expecting to have a Cloyster bell fanboy In the show, but here we are <laughs> um, That's just the life we have to live And I, I kind of almost wish that we had hadn't ever had the cloister bell again because it is something which is so unique to this story like alison you you said liminal spaces and i think that's a brilliant description of the story the story is all about liminal spaces and castrovalva will be so even more Mm. it is about those transitions and that bell that tolling that portent of doom is such a a powerful presence within Legopolis. I think that does come across really well on the page as well, which is no mean achievement from Bidmead. But it's such a lovely kind of symbolic representation of what the Doctor is going to go through over the course of this story. And yeah, I kind of love its presence. Obviously, Tony, you're right. It's incredibly contrived. We've never heard of this thing. Here's this thing. That's lovely But I, I do think it works Within the context of the story I think it's a really Powerful presence That is just this Constant reminder Of dread and doom That this whole story Is soaked in
1: Well and it makes more sense Now that you two Have said that the audience When this was originally aired Would absolutely have known That Tom Baker was leaving Yeah So yeah. something terrible Is going to happen It's this baleful noise How it's going to work out Is still unknown But that makes sense As a representation Of you know you're losing Tom Baker
0: Yeah, and I think you're right, JG, it has been overused since, because if I remember correctly, it only gets used one more time in the classic series. Yeah. And that's Resurrection of the Daleks. Correct. And then it's very brief. It gets used in the TV movie, which is almost justified, but not quite. Mm. And then we get it in the new series, and... It gets used quite a bit in the new series, but it's almost always when the TARDIS is in danger and it's just a general danger, Will Robinson, warning, warning kind of thing. And it was never meant to be quite that.
2: Yeah, less about the Doctor, more about the TARDIS. Exactly.
0: Though, at least in a couple of those cases, it's ringing when the Master's doing something to it. Mm -hmm. So there is that through line.
1: There's some kind of joke in here about how this is why dinner is never served on the TARDIS, because it's too terrifying to call people in. I can't quite form it, but there's something there. You can't
0: ring the dinner bell. People think they're in the midst of a deathly situation.
1: I I have one (laughs)
0: last thing to
3: say, and it's a difference between the broadcast version and the book. The Fifth Doctor gets a line. He
0: does. He gets two of them, in fact.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's quite a surprising change It's the one thing I don't really approve of <laughs> I, I, I agree I think it's a bit of a clunky way it was, Oh, I, I don't know how to end it Oh, it's all different No, I'm sure that'll do, right Okay, off down the pub uh, Probably with Tom Baker But I don't know, I don't really like the fact that the Fifth Doctor gets a
0: line here Yeah, and that's a Monty Python reference Peter Davison saying, and now for something completely different. Oh, yeah, that doesn't help. <laughs> yeah, he does not get that line on screen. In fact, we don't hear Peter Davison actually speak until, what, about 10 minutes into Castro Is that right? Five? So it's pretty far in, yeah.
1: When was this published relative to the air date of the episodes? Like one year later, five years later?
0: About a year later, because this was published in 1982, and the episode aired in uh, end of 81? Uh, end of 80, I think. Correct? Let me check my notes again. February through March of 81.
1: So, so the the audience for this book will have already seen The New Doctor then, Yes, right?
0: they will have. Okay. That's the other thing. Those last lines don't really track in the voice of Peter Davison, which is odd, given that Bigby knows how to write Peter Davison. And he writes him particularly well in Castrovalva, and he writes him even better in Frontios, to my mind. But yeah, it's not in his voice. It doesn't sound like him yet. But that's fine, because later on, we'll have to talk about how Davison sounds. We have to talk about Davison, but not just yet. Not just yet. By the way, there was one other thing I wanted to address, and that's something that Dave brought up in the chat, and that was all the OCR mistakes. And unfortunately, since several of us are reading this in PDF format, those aren't OCR transcription errors. This book is particularly badly copy edited. Hmm. It has some horrible errors to it, which is ironic given that Christopher H. Bidmead was a script editor. You would expect a script editor to be pretty good at editing his own manuscript, but not so much. And I think that's probably what happened with the target editors. They probably looked at it and said, oh, Bidmead was an editor. He knows what he's doing.
1: A script editor means that homophones aren't necessarily a problem. <laughs> no, seriously, it's a different kind of editing than copy editing.
0: I, I agree. I completely agree. <laughs>
2: Anything else we'd like to say? Just one small thing is the the doctor being continually described as woolly. As woolly. Oh, yeah. Yes.
0: <laughs> well, it's it's a good description. It works. Yeah.
1: As are the fiber optic cables, aren't they? Are they also supposed to be mm-hmm. woolly?
0: Yeah. For some reason, he's got fiber optics in the TARDIS. Yes, Jason, go ahead.
1: I wanted to talk about
4: the scene where Adric is reading Paradise Lost in the corridor outside the console room. You guys have brought mm-hmm. that up already, so that's cool. Just to do a quick comparison of the TV transcript versus the book, there's a lot of time spent on television running up and down corridors, particularly Tegan and Adric and Nyssa at various points in the story. And that's the sort of thing you need to do in a TV studio to pad out a 25-minute running time. That's endemic to the show, not a problem with Logopolis itself. What I like about the book is that Bidme takes out all that running through Carter's and replaces it with original scenes, either stuff that he would have had in his original script that was cut or stuff that he invented for the book. So you have the moment where he and Adric go check on the TARDIS's logic circuits. And it's this big sort of fiberglass wig with lights running up and down each individual <laughs> strand of hair, which if you read the New Adventures in the 1990s, that pops up quite a bit. That was influential to a lot of future Doctor Who authors. And then instead of Adric being shoved out into the corridor to stand there awkwardly while the Doctor is talking to Nissa over the intercom, he's given a copy of John Milton's poetry, he's reading the book, and he's analyzing the text of the poem. That's all added value to the book that you're not getting on screen. As much as I like watching it on screen, it makes the book a much more richly textured experience. And one last thing is that Bidmead takes a lot of dialogue on TV and changes it from dialogue into expository text, which again frees him up for more interesting observational humor. So he's doing a lot more to adapt the TV transcript in making this into a proper book and not just a stale novelization. These are all reasons why it's probably one of my favorite books of all time and not just favorite Doctor Who, but favorite books full stop yeah it's definitely not script to page but the few times that it is
0: he is transmogrifying it or generating it even we might say i remember especially the doctor's line about being an ignorant old doctor in which he's talking to himself in the tardis when he says that it's all internal in the doctor's head and i i appreciate that i really do so as we always do Let's go to Goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 370 the reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length. Sorry, everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Dave Davis, who is here with us today, gives it three stars and says, I'm usually averse to mocking other people's spelling and grammar. I'm not. As when I do so, I invariably make a mistake myself. See? I make exceptions, though, for demonstrably horrible people like Donald Trump and Boris Johnson who don't know any better, and for professional writers who should. I think Christopher H. Bidmead may have been an early adopter of word processing technology, as several of his mistakes are spell checker errors, where the word is spelled correctly but it's the wrong word, yes. There were several such errors, but two stood out for me. The one that always annoys me the most is the word lead, L-E-D. If it is spelled L-E-A-D, as Bidmead repeatedly does here, then it pertains to the metal or quality thereof. Otherwise, it is L-E-D. Bidmead uses the word leaden once correctly to describe heavy eyelids, but gets lead wrong every time. The other spell checker error I particularly noted I found funny rather than annoying. It must have been very distracting for the doctor as he climbed the Ferris ladder to hear his coat bellowing behind him. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Despite this, despite Bitney being possibly a little petty and giving the last lines to the Fifth Doctor, perhaps as a passive-aggressive act of revenge on Tom Baker who had given him a bit of a hard time, this is a possibility. I quite enjoyed this book. I had found several of the special effects disappointing, so we're spared those. Legopolis, the place was underwhelming too, as is much better represented in prose than on screen. Not a bad book, but a proofreader could have made it better. I completely agree with all of that. Craig gives it three stars and says, The Doctor's longtime fellow Time Lord and Nemesis, the Master, sets one of his evil plots in motion, which threatens the imminent destruction of creation he never thought small in those days. And it's up to the Doctor to save the day. There's some science soup gobbledygook that's no more comprehensible to me in the book than it was on screen, but it ends with the doctor triumphing but falling from a great height. The novel ends quite harshly and abruptly with the fourth doctor transforming into the fifth and then sitting up to deliver a Monty Python-like line. Well, that's the end of that, said a voice they had not heard before, and it's probably the beginning of something completely different. It was a pretty good story up to that point, but the passing of the torch should have been observed with little dignity. And finally, Charlotte gives it two and a half stars and simply says, I enjoyed the first quarter and it was fun reading from a different Doctor's perspective and just fun in general reading a Doctor's story. However, it just subtly dipped and I constantly found it hard to engage with and enjoy the story. I was also finding it hard to visualize and understand what was going on. So, J.G., out of five stars, what would you give this particular
3: well uh, that's a very good question five
0: <laughs> goodness okay
3: i just love this i sorry i just i don't want to pontificate again but i just adore everything about this even that slightly misplaced last line it's a bit wonky sometimes it's the imperfections that make things perfect it's perfect five stars
0: <laughs> okay that's fair <laughs> dalton out of five stars what would you give this
2: I'll go 3.5 for this one. Something that some of the other comments talked about with kind of feeling lost in some of the wordiness of it. I enjoyed Christopher Bidmead's writing, but at points, I was feeling like I was walking down these corridors and being just led astray. I don't think that all of the stuff that was added was necessarily needed, but... I enjoyed the book. I think that just the story itself maybe had some weak points that could have been tightened up and edited away, but I feel like it was a good story for Tom Baker, the fourth docker to end on. The master was again, an asshole and I enjoyed him for that. (laughs) Um, So yeah, 3.5 for me, which is a little lower than some other ones I've done, but mostly just because I felt like this was a little bloated.
0: Okay. And Allison? I think the
1: definitive quote that's uh, got written down here is, uh, I have never been susceptible to argument based on abstract nouns, doctor. The master touched the silver box and this released her grip. And the doctor responds, then come out into the streets and see what's happening. And that's definitely what the writer is going for here, taking these abstract nouns and putting them in act- an action story in a way that I both appreciate and admire and never quite comes together for me, but that's extremely subjective based on sort of the the headspace that I was in when I was reading it as well. Some things I actually found very touching, obviously, about entropy and and death. And then other things about what seemed to me like the overly fussy complexity of the plot and multiple Watchers and tardises just didn't come together for me. So keeping in mind that mob justice isn't really acceptable in this format, I'm going to go with three. That was for J.G., so, no, no, uh, it, it's, uh, I skew... It's all right, Alison, I forgive you. No, no, I skew low, though, also. I, I always skew very low uh, uh, on these, and, and I mean it in a quite positive way. So I actually admire tremendously what it is. What it is was never going to work for me, so that's a very personal, almost uh, apologetic three, if you will.
2: A three is pretty much a rave from Allison. so... Yes, is
0: well, But also, <laughs>
1: another thing that can't be replicated for me is that experience of having seen it when it aired and how exciting and intense it was. And the thing I've talked about before that was that exciting for me an episode in terms of what television could be was the premiere of Deep Space Nine. And there's nothing mm-hmm. that could ever replicate for me part two of the pilot for Deep Space Nine, for example. So... What this novelization did for some people who experienced this episode as it first aired couldn't be replicated for me, no matter how good the novelization was.
0: You could see that. And as for me, I'm not going to go quite as high as Chi Chi, but I am going to give it a 4.75, which is fairly high for me because this comes really damn close to what I think of as the pinnacle, no pun intended, of Doctor Who novelizations, which would be things like David Whitaker's Doctor Who and the Daleks or something by Malcolm Hulk or some of the better works of Ian Martyr, or The Gunfighters, which are all, in my mind, just about perfect books. This one comes really damn close because the story itself, it's like, yeah, it's sad and all. It's like, eh, But it has certain bits that drag for me terribly they don't drag for me in the book there are things that are rehabilitated in the book and this time for the first time probably in all the times I've tried to read this book I not only finished it I enjoyed it I enjoyed it immensely and it actually makes me look forward to Valva, which I normally do not look forward to because I don't like Valva much (laughs) (laughs) As we will see.
1: I'm not very curious about it after all the Castrovalva talk we've heard oh. in the last couple of hours.
0: Well, as we will see when we come back in February with J.G. joining us on that one, there are things about that one. But the book, I have a feeling after having read this, I think I may actually be a little more better predisposed towards the book this time. So 4.75. So thank you all. Mm-hmm. And thank you, fellow time travellers, for giving us your valuable time. I want to thank JG McCory for joining us on this adventure, as it were.
3: Hey, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for responding to my abject begging and my absolute pathetic <laughs> abasement to try and just get on this episode. I'm extremely <laughs> grateful, and it's been lovely. Thank you so much.
0: No problem. And we'll look forward to having you back in February when we do Valva. I'd like to also thank our guests today who joined us live, which would be Dave Davis, Rick Taylor, and Jason Miller. Thank you all for being part of this with us. And next next time, I'll make sure I have a working mic. (laughs) Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we will have our Christmas special for 2022, which will be, I'm so sorry, the novelization of P9 and Company. (laughs) We are doing Canine and Company because it is set during Christmas. It is, God help us all, in story order after the story and before Castrovalva, and it's just there to be done, and God slay me now.
2: It's a white elephant gift, Tony.
0: (laughs) It really is a white elephant gift. It is the white elephant (laughs) gift of all Doctor Who novelizations, even though I just found out. There's a novelization of Dimensions in Time, and we are going to do it. Uh, and we'll probably have the author on because it's Jim Sangster, so I really want to do that one because I have a feeling he has literally made a silk purse out of a sow's ear.
1: You know, in certain jurisdictions, this could be categorized as attempted manslaughter.
0: It could be, <laughs> but not here. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Dr. New Target Book Club Podcast, all in the new spaces feel free to follow us on Twitter. For the meantime, we're at EC for now. And subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at emperordolik at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye.
2: Bye. Bye. Bye.
4: For something completely different
0: it's multi-pythons flying circus direction point direction point a doctor who podcast network